Hello, Four Corners Church. I pray that each of you are doing well, that your families are doing well. And I pray that, as we've talked about before, as we're going through Romans, I pray that you are daily preaching the gospel to yourself. Uh, This is an idea that struck me, I think, really for the first time explicitly uh, when I came to to start reading uh, Paul Tripp. He is one who I think does a really good job in the counseling books that he puts out, books on all sorts of topics, does a really good job of reminding us all that we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. And so we've, we've been talking a lot about evangelism. We know we need to be preaching the gospel to other people. But I pray that during this time you are preaching the gospel to your own soul. Just as we see in the Psalms, this uh, speaking to your own soul, calling out to God or calling out to your soul in the presence of God and preaching God's gospel to your own heart. Let me just start with a quick reminder this morning to everyone to please fill out the survey. Uh, You received this by email. This is a survey about regathering, and our deacons have just done an incredible job, and I want to commend them, and and I thank God for them. They've done an incredible job thinking through, processing the practicalities of what it would look like to regather, and they've sent out an email, a survey, which very briefly at the beginning outlines what the what the plan is for the for the immediate future, and there's many there are many things we need to work out, particularly this week in an elders meeting, we'll be discussing along with the deacons. Uh, what some of these practicalities look like. But you'll notice after that that there's a survey for you to share, very brief survey, for you to share where your mind is at right now. And we just want to get a sense for where the church is at as a whole. So please take just a little bit of time to do that. It will help us as elders in our decision making and as we care for this local body of believers. Also, uh, I think this needs to be said, it's very important, that um, we all during this time must be on guard against the temptation to be divided as we plan to regather. This really is an opportunity for Satan to tempt us to be divided among ourselves as a church. And the one thing we need to understand is that we do not have to agree in order to love each other in the Lord. That's the most important point that I really want to convey to us as we make this transition, as we begin to move in this direction, is that there will be many disagreements within the church, many different opinions about what is going on and, and, and to the, the extent to which we could be affected and, and how to do this or that. We value those opinions, so I'm not dismissing any of those, but we need to recognize as a church that there will be a spectrum of opinions on moving forward. And my prayer for us, and our prayer as as an elder board, is that there would not be division and judgment during this time, but that there would be charity and unity. And one of the ways that we can cultivate this, or I should say several ways that we can cultivate this charity and unity during this time, is to dialogue with each other prayerfully. So to talk about why we've seen this on the elder board, we've seen, I've seen this recently in our staff meetings, the differences that we have, the different mindsets, and to dialogue about these, to talk with one another about where we are mentally and the practices that we are keeping up, the precautionary measures that we are keeping up, and why we're doing that. And to listen to one another, to be slow to speak and quick to listen, and to pray for each other. And I think as we dialogue with one another, those on either extreme may be brought more and more toward an understanding of each other's views. So this is just an encouragement to us in the months ahead, that in the weeks and months ahead, that we maintain love for one another. This is, we know, Christ's will for us as his sheep. Let me also quickly remind all of you about the prayer service Sunday evening. Uh, You'll be watching this on Sunday, so this evening, uh, but today is Saturday as we film, and so Sunday evening we'll have a prayer service. Trey will be leading that, and this will be an opportunity for us not to just gather as small groups, 
but to gather as an entire congregation. I put gather in quotation marks, but gather through Zoom and to be able to pray together as a church. So please try to uh, make that if you are able. So this morning, we come to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, as we are going through our series in Romans. So if you would please turn there now. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. In verses 16 to 17, we were given the theme of the letter. And the theme of the letter is simple, the gospel, the good news, the gospel of God. Paul is eager to preach this good news in Rome because he's not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed of it because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes because God's gift of righteousness received by faith is revealed in it. So it is powerful because of what it reveals. And what it reveals is a gift of righteousness that is received by faith. The gospel tells us that we can be justified or made right with God by faith. That Christ's perfect righteousness, his, his perfection, his perfectly God-pleasing, sin-hating, righteous life is imputed to us or reckoned to our account before the face of God, before the eyes of God. That when God looks upon us, he sees righteousness because Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. So now, in verse 18, Paul launches into the main body of his letter. So we could say that we've, we've now completed all of the introductory material. Paul's introduced himself. He has introduced his message, the content of it early on. Uh, verses uh, 3 and 4, or 2 to 4, really. He has introduced uh, his mission. He's introduced his ministry, his audience. He has greeted his audience. He has explained to them his heart for them. And he's moved from that explanation into the theme or thesis of the entire letter. And now, with verse 18, he launches into the letter proper, to the main body of Romans. And the first major section runs until the end of the fourth chapter. So we're now giving, giving ourselves a little bit of structural understanding of, of Romans. What we are going to be looking at now, starting in verse 18, will run all the way to the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 25. And that helps us, I think, work through a long series. We saw this with Genesis. We had the first 11 chapters. And then we entered into the, the, the content about Abraham. And then we moved from Abraham to Isaac, uh, quickly through Isaac. And then we spent a lot of time on Jacob before at the end of Genesis, we camped out on Joseph, which is really still about Jacob, but the story centering on Joseph. So it helped us move through that very long series with all of these, you could understand it as series within the series. And we can think the same way about Romans. What we are focused on now are these first four chapters. And here, in these first four chapters, this theme of justification by faith takes center stage. Important throughout all of the letter of Romans, but specifically, and in terms of a large part of the content, it takes center stage in these first four chapters chapters. It is, justification by faith, is, as Douglas Moo, one commentator says, the heart of the gospel. So we are, in these four chapters, getting to the very centerpiece of the good news, getting to the very heart of the gospel message. But this good news has a key starting point. And maybe for you, 
This is an unexpected starting point. Paul launches in to his description of the gospel. He launches into this justification by faith center of the gospel with wrath, condemnation, judgment. Maybe for you this is quite unexpected. But this will be the theme running all the way from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. So we will be here in the land of wrath, condemnation, and judgment for a long time. Maybe some of you who were so excited about going through Romans did not consider this. That this is where we must begin. We will be here for a little while. The message of universal sinfulness and condemnation. The gospel of salvation only makes sense if we understand what we are saved from. And that is so important because we talk about salvation, salvation, salvation. And and this is a big idea. And we're quite happy to talk about that. Churches are happy to talk about that. Books are written on that. It's, it, it's nice to talk about being rescued. It's nice to talk about being delivered, being saved. That's a wonderful, wonderful idea that lifts us up. But it begs a question. Saved from what? Rescued from what? Delivered from what? No one understands, you, you, you never understand the word rescue apart from a scenario that is negative. You're rescued from something that is bad. And that makes the rescue so good. In other words, the beauty of the good news can only be seen against the backdrop of the horror of the bad news. And this tells us something very important about gospel ministry, about churches, about preaching. It tells us that where sin, death, and hell are not preached, the gospel is not, cannot be celebrated. So hear that. Where sin, death, and hell are not proclaimed, preached, taught, the gospel loses all of its beauty. It cannot be celebrated unless it is seen with the backdrop of the horror, the bad. And where the gospel is not celebrated, Christ is not glorified. So listen, sin, death, and hell Proclaiming these things, communicating these things are ultimately about the glory of Christ and his cross. Christ's glory and the glory of his cross work depend upon, in the, in the minds of the hearers, depend upon a proclamation of this condemnation, wrath, sin, death, and hell. Although, chapter 1 Verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20 is hard for us to hear. And it is. It's similar in some ways to Ecclesiastes. As uh, the men's ministry has, or the men of the church have been going through that for a little while now. This, uh, this, this message that is somewhat, at, at the initial phases, is somewhat difficult to hear. It is hard for us to hear. Although that is the case in it. We get the sweetness of realism. Nobody wants to be lied to. And someone who tells you a message of Christianity without a message of wrath, condemnation, death, hell, sin, judgment, without this, is lying to you. They are not communicating to you the truth. There is a sweetness in knowing, no matter how hard it may be to hear it, there is a sweetness in knowing that you're being told the truth. Realism. The real situation on the ground. The real condition of humanity. We also get the stepping stones to appreciation. As I've said already, 
we cannot appreciate the grandeur and glory and effect and impact of the gospel without understanding what we find here. And so we are stepping our way, if you will, from verse 18 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. We are stepping our way towards appreciation of the gospel. Let this portion do that for you. Let this portion begin to, as much as Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 uh, does for us, let this portion of Romans bring you to a greater awareness of what you've been saved from and therefore a greater appreciation of this salvation. But it is also here fuel for hatred of sin. We will not hate sin if we don't understand how nasty it is. We have to see sin for what it really is, for how disgusting and deceitful and destructive and how it it blasphemes the name of God, how it tramples on his glory and his order in creation. We will not hate sin until we see how ugly it is. And so this portion of Romans helps us to see sin as despicable and disgusting to the extent that we will put it to death by the Spirit. As Paul will go on to say in Romans 8. And as we find all throughout the New Testament, the need to to flee from sin, to put sin to death, to hate sin, it begins here with understanding what it is. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Judgment Revealed. Last week we talked about the gospel revealed, but now we need to see the judgment revealed. Let me say it this way. We need to diagnose the patient before presenting the cure. I mean, everyone knows this. A cure does not make any sense without a diagnosis, without understanding what ails the patient. What ails the patient will then make the cure sensible and that much more precious. And so that's what we're doing as we begin today with verse 18. So the judgment revealed and two things we're going to see this morning. Here are the two points. For those of you who are taking notes, the two points for the sermon this morning are anger from above, evil from below. So two simple points, anger from above, number one. Number two, evil from below. So if you would please stand with me. At this time, we're going to read God's word. Just one verse. Yes, we will stand for one verse. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and of righteous and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. We begin here. This is a section. We'll talk more about this. But this section uh, that begins here in verse 18, the section within a section, goes to the end of chapter 1. But today, I just want to camp out on this very first verse of the section, verse 18. So let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Father, humbly, humbly we come before you, before a text like this. God, it's incredible what we read here. We should all be swept away by your wrath. Father, we haven't even begun to understand the depth of how we have trampled upon and rebelled against your glory 
We have hated that very thing that we ought to have loved. Or we have hated the one whom above all we ought to love. We have taken for granted all your blessings as a human race. Father, we deserve death and hell. I deserve death and hell. Father, I pray that as we go through this extended section on your judgment, your condemnation, that those marvelous words that we start to to get unpacked for us going through Romans 1 to 8, but those wonderful words at the beginning of Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that the, the meaning, the weight, the glory of those words would be felt all the more because of what we're doing here today and what we'll be doing in the weeks ahead. So Father, be merciful to us. We pray as we go through this, help us to feel the weight of sin, our sin. Convict us. But Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, all the while we are rejoicing because not a single word of condemnation can be received apart from an immediate recognition that we have been redeemed from that through Christ. And so God, I pray that that, this would be a time of celebration as we look down into the waters that we were pulled from. As we look down upon the fiery volcano that we were rescued from falling into. And we think about what would come of us had we not been saved. What we would be if we were not believers. God, do this work in us, I pray, by means of this wonderful set of verses. And today, Lord, in verse 18, make it clear to us, your people, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So first, this morning, we look at anger from above. Look at the first part of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against or upon all ungodliness And unrighteousness of men. Once again, we start with this word for. Paul, once again, logically bringing his ideas together. Paul's writing is so incredibly dense. And it is the reason why so many commentaries have been written on just the smallest of Paul's letters, and particularly here on Romans. I mean, the the, the, the size of the commentaries, as I commented in the very first sermon, are massive. And the amount of discussion that there has been on the Apostle Paul. And oftentimes, it, it comes back to places like this where you really are trying to understand the logic of the Apostle. Deconstruct his logic and understand or untangle his logic so that we're able to feel precisely and understand precisely what he is conveying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder to us that there is a simplicity to Scripture, but there is also an immense depth to it, so that someone can pick this up and read it and understand immediately, essentially, basically, what is going on. But the most learned of those in history have have spent hours upon hours investigating and studying these things. The simplicity and the depth. We marvel at God's word. So we start with this word for. Paul is here explaining why. Why we need this righteousness that he mentions in verse 17. Because of God's wrath against the sin of sinners. It is because of God's wrath against the sin of sinners, that a righteousness from God needs to be revealed. There is no good news apart from that. 
That is why we need God's gift of righteousness because of the wrath. And that is why it must be by faith. We need the righteousness of God by faith because the so-called righteousness of man by works amounts to nothing. What righteousness from God do we need if we can have our own righteousness? If we can produce our own righteousness, then how good is the news that righteousness given from God is here, present to us in the gospel? Now, this idea of wrath, or when we lived in Britain, wrath, this idea of wrath, strong, fierce, anger, or indignation, is foreign and offensive in our world. And for those of us who have grown up in church hearing this language, having grown up in a Southern Baptist church, uh, this was not foreign to me at all. Very early on, God's judgment, hell, wrath, these, these, were, these ideas were faithfully proclaimed and presented to me since I was a very small child. I praise God for that. I praise God for that. But to those who have come to Christianity late in life or to those who, uh, for whom Christianity is very, is very foreign, this is a foreign and offensive idea. God's wrath. It is foreign today because wrath is simply not a word we use very often. We don't use this word today really in common English. Probably you can't remember the last time you heard someone, apart from, from this context, apart from explaining the wrath of God as it's presented in the Bible, the last time you heard someone use the word wrath. So it's foreign to us. It is offensive in our world because of what it says about God and the human condition. A God of wrath is seen as primitive, backwards, inhumane, and just unworthy of a divine being. Famous atheist Bertrand Russell commented on this teaching of wrath and hell in Jesus and reflected on the fact that this was one of the things that most turned him against Christ. And he celebrated Socrates over and above Christ as a great teacher because of this obnoxious, odious idea of God's wrath, of hell, and all that is entailed there. And it's no surprise to us that God who exercises, or a God who exercises vindictive fury in holding us accountable for our sins would be unpopular. Of course, it is just as Jesus said, men love darkness. Light exposes their dark, evil deeds. Men love to lurch around in the darkness. Hating, hating this idea of a divine authority who exercises vindictive fury. So aside from it being seen as a primitive, uh, primitive unworthy idea of, of a God, it is also something that flies in the face of our sin. Yes, this is a God who knows our thoughts and who judges us even for our thoughts. But here we have it, the wrath of God presented to us so clearly and so explicitly and so in our faces, right in our faces. Why would a Christian hide from this truth? Why would we desire not to hear of this biblical idea that is all over the scriptures? The wrath of God. God's vehement anger towards sin. And Paul tells us here that it is a present reality. Notice that. It is 
a present reality. It is being revealed from heaven. That is, it is being revealed from God, from his dwelling place. Yes? We see it associated with certain events in the past, in the Bible. So we see the wrath of God in the flood. We see it in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the plagues of Egypt. The destruction of the Canaanites. God's exercising of his judgment, his wrath against Israel in the wilderness. Opening up the earth and swallowing some of them. Sending fire out. Serpents and so forth. We see it in God sending Babylon to destroy Jerusalem. All throughout the Old Testament, we see these these past events which are instances of God's wrath. And yes, we are told that there will be a future outpouring of God's wrath on the world. So we, we know that there are past instances of God's Wrath, And we know that the Bible tells us all throughout that there will be a future time of God's wrath. The day of wrath. The day of the Lord. But what Paul says here is that this wrath is an ever-present reality that stands over all humanity. It is, it is breathtaking. To walk outside on a beautiful day. To be at a festival or a fair. To be at a sporting event filled with smiling faces and cheerful dispositions. And to know wrath of God stands over this world. Stands over all humanity. Let not God's common graces... That the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That the sun rises. That beautiful, sweet babies are born and raised. That husbands and wives marry. There are all kinds of beautiful things. A nice bite to eat. A cold glass of water. So many wonderful delights for mankind. And yet, all under the wrath of God. This is similar to what we find in John chapter 3, verse 36, where Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And then listen to what Jesus says. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is similar language to what we have here with Paul. An abiding, remaining, ever-present wrath on humanity as a whole. And I think this present tense, being revealed, involves several things. So let's think about this for a moment. We understand wrath in the past, these instances. We understand a day of wrath. We can go and read texts in Revelation to understand the events of that day, that future time. But what is, what is Paul getting at here with this present tense revealing of wrath? <clears throat> Several things for us to consider. It is a verdict. As I've already indicated, it is a verdict that hangs over people. It is the, the language of being on death row. Although not having been brought yet to the slaughter, although not having had the waves and the wind, to use Jesus' language in the Sermon on the Mount, crashing in and destroying it, although not yet having been blown away like chaff, to use the language of Psalm 1, nonetheless awaiting under this verdict of guilty, deserving of death, awaiting that ultimate final full death. So there is that aspect of it. It is also revealed through the outworking of sin in human society. And so what we're going to find as we go through the end of chapter 1 of Romans is this repeated idea, God gave them up. 
God gave them over to. And we're going to read of these sins that are there at the end of chapter 1. We're going to read of these sins that are actually God's judgment. The sins themselves are God's judgment on humanity. That, that in sin, in their sin, God gave them over to further sin. There is the outworking, the giving up that I think is in view here in the context. It is revealed in the human conscience. Chapter 1, verse 32, just as an example, Paul says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. There is a sense within each of us that we deserve death. There is a sense because of the knowledge that that Paul will talk about and the suppression of that and the wickedness in the world, there is a, a sense in us of deserving death. It's one of the reasons why we, we huddle in the darkness. We hate the light. We refrain from hearing messages of wrath because we are, we we know deep down inside we deserve it. We deserve it. Our consciences afflict us and we sear them and we cover them. We put blanket after blanket after blanket upon them so that we can no longer hear its voice, but it's there. Those who practice such things deserve to die, Paul will say. This wrath is present tense exercised also through governing authorities. This may be something you haven't thought of, But in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, Paul will say that the governing authorities, and it's fascinating to think that he wrote this at a time when the Roman Empire, with all of the wickedness of the Roman Empire and all of the wickedness of the Caesars in the first century, Caligula, Nero, and so forth, all of them, he writes this during that time. And this is what he says even about people like Caligula, even about people like Nero. He says that they they carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God has an invested government. This is why anarchy is so bad and so unbiblical. One of the main reasons is because God has invested government with its authority to exercise his vengeance upon evil. To bring the sword, Paul will even say. So, in a sense, the government cracking down on evil doing is itself a demonstration of the present tense of God's wrath. And... In line with verse 17, it is revealed in the gospel. So we're thinking about all the ways that God's wrath is revealed in the present. And finally here, I want you to see that it is revealed in the gospel itself. Just as God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, so too is his wrath. How do we know that? What is the gospel called? The word of the cross The word of the cross. You cannot say, I have come to preach Christ crucified. You cannot say, I am bringing the word of the cross without it being packed into that, the wrath of God. Because what is the cross? It is the cursed one who hangs on a tree. It is the propitiation for our sins given up there. It is, it is the lamb who, who carries our sin. It is the spilling of the blood that causes God to pass by in his wrath. So the word of the cross is the word of righteousness, but it is also the word of judgment. Christ's death shows the reality and seriousness of God's wrath. So in all of these ways, the wrath of God is present tense being revealed to all humanity. But what are we to make of this wrath? This divine anger? Just sounds so unbecoming of God, right? I mean, anger, God, and anger? Back to our earlier point. Should we really think of God as angry? You might be asking. I mean, is that 
Is that a a, a way we should conceive of God? A couple of considerations here I think will help us. And and first I want to say what this wrath is not. And then I want to say closely aligned to that what this wrath is. What this wrath is not and what it is. So first, what it is not. This is not human wrath. The reason why, well, apart from the reasons I mentioned earlier, the reason why it's so difficult for us to think of God as angry. God is angry. The reason it is difficult for us to think of that is because of what we see when human beings get angry. This is not human wrath. It is not the sinful, selfish, unpredictable, uncontrolled outburst of a human being. Let me give you a couple verses just to kind of bear this out. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. We're told in, in Ephesians several times to be imitators of God. We're told in Ephesians 4, 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. All these things. Don't do these things. Put these things away. Now, it's interesting here that the word wrath is put with all of these other words, bitterness and clamor and slander. What does that tell us? It tells us, hear this, that where there is human anger, there are also these friends. These friends travel together. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. These are buddies. They travel in the same van. Where there is human anger, there will be this other nastiness. Not so in God. James chapter 1 verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But we know throughout the Bible that God's wrath is associated with his righteousness, his justice. And so here we see that, it's, that the anger of man is the very opposite of that. So one of the reasons why this idea of God being wrathful might be so appalling to you is because immediately you just can't seem to get above the roof. You just cannot seem to, to not think of human beings or your, even your own self as you've gotten angry or you've seen people get angry and all the nastiness and, and, and yelling and foaming at the mouth and striking things. Maybe even you've seen striking other people. That's what you think of. Not so. Not so. Second, what it is. So that's what it is not. Now we look at what it is. This wrath is righteous judgment. John Murray, commentator of Romans and a great theologian, I think, in many ways. John Murray wrote this. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Revulsion. That is a strong word and it is so fitting. His holy revulsion against what contradicts his holiness. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says this, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. All the intense language in the Bible associated with God's wrath. And I looked at the 200 plus instances in the Old Testament where this word in the Greek Old Testament is used. All of the different ways that the prophets use this word and the psalmists use this word. And the way it's used in the first five books of the Bible with respect to to, uh, the Israelites. All throughout, and you find repeatedly this language of of fury and fierceness and fire being consumed. Blood. This this very sort of violent language. All of this intense, violent language is meant to convey this revulsion of God against unholiness and sin. Throughout Scripture, something else to consider God's love, his goodness, and his salvation are tethered to his judgment. How could we celebrate the exodus? Oh, the marvel of that event. I mean, here are these ragtag Israelites. They've been enslaved and whipped. 
whipped and beaten. And, and there they are. They're, they're coming out. You see them, these massive, you've seen the cartoon movies, you've seen the movies, this mass of people coming out of Egypt. They've been delivered by their God. Oh, the glory of it, the beauty of it. We clap our hands in celebration, but that doesn't make any sense and it doesn't happen without God's judgment on Egypt. His love and his goodness and his salvation in Scripture always presented alongside of his judgment. For example, he vindicates and rescues his people by pouring out wrath on their enemies and persecutors. You hear this in Revelation. How long, O oh Lord? You hear this in the Psalms. The enemies who mistreat the persecutors of God's people. God will have his vengeance in his justice. Vindication, salvation, goodness, all tied together in the Bible. There is a reason why we celebrate the bad guys getting what they deserve in a movie or a book. I mean, there is, there is that, that intense impulse within us when there are some evildoers who kidnap someone or rape someone, murder someone, go into a village. And, and then the, the good guys in the movie or the book come in and wipe them out. There is, there's this sense of satisfaction that we have. It's, it's very natural. We may not want to see the violence of it. But that sense of satisfaction that justice was done is there nonetheless. We all have this moral sense of justice. And we are rightly outraged. We become rightly indignant at the sight of evil and cruelty and injustice. How could that be? We step in. So does God. Even more, perfectly, this revulsion, this outrage, this indignation that God has towards sin. But, hear this, the greatest injustice and evil of all, the root and heart of all evil is man's treatment of God. Think of any evil deed that a human being can do to another human being. And it must be traced back to mistreatment of God. And that leads us now to our second point. So we've looked at anger from above. Now we consider evil from below as we finish this morning. Look at the latter part of verse 18. Evil from below. Here we consider the object of God's wrath. It is revealed against or upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now there are, I think, several major observations that we need to make here about this evil from below. This object of God's just anger. So here they are, as we finish up, four observations for us this morning. First, the words ungodliness and unrighteousness both have to do with God. Going back to the point I just made. Ungodliness and unrighteousness both have to do with God. One commentator, Charles Cranfield, says that ungodliness focuses attention on the fact that all sin is an attack on the majesty of God and unrighteousness on the fact that it is a violation of God's just order. That's what's in view here. All sin is against God. Whether it is understood as being against his majestic glory, as irreligion, as ungodliness, or Sin against his right order. Injustice, unrighteousness. Either way, it is against God. 
Psalm 51 makes this point, and you probably know this. You've heard this quoted before. Psalm 51, David, after great sin against the Lord, he says this, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yes, David has done horrific things to people, to human beings, but against you I've sinned, God. David recognized that all sin is ultimately this ungodliness and unrighteousness, this trampling on God's glory, this trampling on God's order. Let me just say this to you in case maybe you need to be reminded of this. And I think during a time like this where, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, there is the temptation to have division and to be judgmental of each other as we transition towards regathering. Those who maybe don't see things quite the same way you do. Let me just remind us of this. Our mistreatment of others is sin against God. When we judge others, when we gossip or about others or slander others, when we mistreat people, we are sinning against God. So that's the first observation that we need to make here based on the use of these words. Secondly, I want you to see that what Paul has in view here is all sin of all people. So we're thinking about the evil from below that is the object of the anger from above. The anger from above directed towards the evil from below. And here I am saying that what Paul has in view is all sin of all people. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is the language of universal condemnation. Ungodliness and unrighteousness are comprehensive terms that are meant to capture all forms of sin. So any kind of sin, any subset of sin, any subcategory of sin must be taken and put underneath these two umbrella terms. And the word all, as well as the general reference to men or mankind, prepares us for the later verdict that we get in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. Or chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So just as we saw last time that no sin is, is anything other than sin against God. Of course, we know it is sin against people, but all sin is sin against God. Here I want you to see that no flavor, no kind of sin escapes God's wrath. And maybe... Maybe there's a sin right now in your life. Maybe you're not a believer. And you're thinking as you go through life that you're, you're balancing out your sins. You know, maybe you're thinking about, well, there, there might be a God. Maybe you're convinced there is a God, but you don't know how he can be described. You're, you're agnostic. Maybe not atheist, but you're agnostic. You're just thinking, you know, I mean, I, I, yeah, I do these things, but I don't do these things. We need to understand that no flavor, no kind of sin escapes God's wrath. God pours out his wrath on all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Every sin at the end, by the end of time, every single sin, oh, it is breathtaking. Every single sin judged. That's how just that's how attentive to detail, that's how sovereign and mighty this God is. No sin escapes his attention and therefore his holy wrath. That's the second observation. A third observation for us is that the sin is of men. Now this may not be something that you've really considered, and it's difficult to really wrap our minds around this, but this, notice that this sin is of men. It is in our fallen nature. Hear this. It is not something, this ungodliness and unrighteousness of 
men is not something that we can just detach from the sinner. You've heard this language. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. And we, of course, understand what is meant there, right? I mean, we, we understand God loves even his enemies. We understand also that we, our, our, our revulsion should be against sin within sinners. But here's the problem with that little saying. Sin is not something that is just sort of there on top of, sprinkled on top of, of, of a sinner, or, or maybe is within, like in a cage. There's sin in that cage, and, and you, you look at that, at that sin in that cage or sprinkled on top, and, and you direct your hatred towards that. It's not the way the Bible describes the sin of men, the sin of humans. Instead, it is pervasively embedded in all that we are. It is infused in every aspect of our being. It is in every fiber. It is, it is in our root system. It's in every branch. It's on every leaf. It is not something you can isolate and say, there it is. It's connected in every way to the person. This is how totally depraved we are. It is the reason why God says in Psalm 5, 5 to 6, Listen to the language. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate evil doers. You hate all evil doers. Whoa, 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 whoa. God, God says he hates sinners. He hates evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. It does not say he hates all evil doing. It does not say that he abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful ways. Why is that? It is because the sin is of men. It is not a thing apart from the soul of the person. It is embedded in all that we are. It is the reason why Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says that we are as human beings and those of us who are Christians were before we became Christians by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. Offspring of wrath. Finally, fourth observation this morning. This evil from below involves at its core an attack on the truth. The issue is the truth. Truth about God, the knowledge of God. Paul will go on in subsequent verses in chapter 1 as we'll begin to look at next week. Paul will go on to explain this in much more detail. But for now, we simply need to see the nature of sin as an attack on the truth. Kent Hughes describes this as the anatomy of unbelief. We're getting here the anatomy of unbelief. It's as though we're dissecting what is going on in the heart and mind of an unbeliever. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then listen to what he goes on to say. The atheist, the, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then he says this, They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The connection of saying there is no God, an intellectual statement with corruption, with abominable deeds. Same idea Paul has here. It is not ignorance, but folly. It is not about being unpersuaded, but listen, it is about actively suppressing the truth. God's truth. The image is holding down the truth by means of this unrighteousness. That is what we do. All of us by nature. And that is why it is such good news that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Praise God. 
that this condition, though once ours in Christ, has been changed and this guilt has been removed and this wrath has been absorbed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for reminding us, much as Ephesians 2 does, of who we were before Christ. Father, I pray that those listening to this, maybe who are not Christians, will feel the weight of your judgment upon them and that they will look to Christ, the judgment-bearing Savior. Father, would we all look to Christ and delight in him and would we truly appreciate the beauty of the gospel against the backdrop of this horror. In Jesus' name, amen.